Phil, uh, great to meet you. Um, where are you based? Where are you? Um, yeah, good to meet you too. And uh, I'm based in the UK um, in the Devizes area, which is in Wiltshire, um, right on the Kennet and Avon Canal um, and uh, amongst all the Wiltshire hills. So it's a really nice place for, for getting out for some good walks in these lockdown times. Yeah, yeah, so important. I, I was just to start off, I was looking at your Facebook uh, page, and there up front is this wonderful photo of you in a one atmosphere suit. Mm, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, the, the first time I ever saw those on TV was with uh, Sylvia Earle, which was a long yes. time ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. They've changed in design now by the looks of it. Um, yeah. How did you get to get into one of those, and do you use them often? Well, um, so the story behind how I got into one, because it's quite quite unusual to get access to one of those pieces of equipment, and more importantly, the the training to to use it. Um, I started working as a diving safety officer for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, or WUI as they're known. They're the institute um, on the east coast of North America that found the Titanic, found the Black Smokers. So they're one of the, the premium. Um, oceanographic institutes worldwide and I started working for them as a trainer teaching their dive team to use closed circuit rebreathers um, they'd chosen a particular rebreather bought it through the manufacturer um, asked how do we get trained and the manufacturer had sent me their test diver I worked for the manufacturer at the time and so I went over and did their course and then as a process of doing their course got to know the individuals we liked each other and they invited me back to be a dive team member on some of their projects the first of which was the um, very famous Antikythera mechanism shipwreck um, in Greece so after a couple of seasons as, as working as a commercial diver for them on the project they actually asked me to be their diving safety officer and that grew into being DSO dive safety officer and eventually DOM dive operations manager for um, a lot of their projects and a lot of other institutional projects. Um, now, from the Antikythera wreck, we had the sponsorship option to use uh, an exosuit, which is the iteration of the One Atmosphere suit that we have, um, free of charge. So the, the owner of the suit said, I believe in the project. I think the, uh, the project has great merit. I have this suit. I have the full support package. So I'd be prepared to loan it to Woods Hole as and when they need for their projects. And th this happens quite often with Woods Hole. They're associated with other projects. For example, when um, James Cameron went to the bottom of the deepest point in the ocean, the Mariana Trench, in his um, self-designed and self-built uh, Deep Challenger um, submersible, Woods Hole were involved in that as well. So they, they tend to get involved and they tend to get a lot of uh, support from different institutions. So we got sent over to Woods Hole itself um, um, in uh, the town of Woods Hole, which is to the south of Boston. And we did the full pilot training program. So rather than just a tri dive, we were actually there for nine days doing the assembly, the system checks, the, the prep. Um, all, were, all of us were trained to be topside operators and supervisors as well as divers on the suit. Um, and we worked our way through a series of dives um, under the Woods Hole dock through their moon pool, which is not very deep, but um, with a one atmosphere suit, it doesn't matter because uh, the, the feel of diving it in 20 metres under the Woods Hole dock or diving it in 70 metres on the Antikythera shipwreck site 
is absolutely identical. You're at one atmosphere of pressure. You go down, you do your job, you come up, you get out, you have a sandwich, and then you supervise the next guy. No decompression, no cold, no water, no nothing. So uh, I actually got certified as um, a exosuit um, ADS pilot um, and got to log a significant number of hours on the unit during the training. Uh, and then we, uh, we shipped it out to Greece and were loaned a support vessel by the Greek Navy, a uh, big, big old um, post-Second World War steamship called the Fetis. And we run the, the exosuit off the back of that. And the reason was um, on the Antikythera mechanism shipwreck, it's most famous for numerous bronze and marble sculptures that were recovered in 1901 by brass helmet divers sponge divers and one of those sculptures is a huge two meter tall statue of hercules and it's now in the the foyer of the cafe at the national museum of archaeology in athens along with three um, huge marble horses so the idea was that hercules was stood in a chariot being pulled by the horses all marble and, and wood but one horse is missing and when you look back through the records large rocks the size of a small van were dumped because they were moved, believing other sculptures may be under them. And it's likely that one of these dumped rocks was actually the fourth horse. So we used uh, bathymetry and side scan sonar technology from the company EdgeTech to find these anomalies on the seabed off the wreck site. And the plan was to proceed and use the exosuit to go and look at these lumps if they were too deep for our CCR team um, as part of the ongoing project. So. Sorry if that was quite a long answer, but that, that's how I got in an exosuit. Absolutely fascinating. My goodness, what an adventure. Mm, very yeah. much. Yeah, very so, much. So when you're actually using it, I mean, what kind of depths? What were, what's the maximum depth you've been in, in, in it? Um, for myself, yeah. I've only been 20 metres in it. So basically, okay. I did all my training at Woods Hole in 20 metres, and then we had... Um, problems deploying it in Greece because we were loaned one of the most expensive parts of operating machinery like that at sea is the supporting vessel now the ideal vessel to actually support um, the exosuit close to shore in deep water would be a, a DPV vessel dynamically positioning vessel with thrusters connected to satellite so it can hold position regardless of current and waves and winds not anchored and that would be the, the ultimate system to deploy the exosuit or rov or even a, a, a bell-based diving team from but they're very very expensive on that project we had various vessels for the dive team but for the big heavy duty stuff we were given um, a, a greek navy ship to support the project um, two projects i've done over the last few years in croatia we were given a croatian navy vessels in 2017 a um, landing ship tank as our dive vessel but these things are not very maneuverable um, so the, the landing craft in Croatia we put on a three-point mooring so we just moor it and leave it over the site as a working platform for the whole project only moving it if bad weather came. Antikythera the, the topography of the shoreline of the island of Antikythera is near vertical so the wreck site is very close to shore but in very deep water so positioning a vessel has got huge risk if the storms come, which is why the Antikythera shipwreck is there in the first place. So we, we weren't really able to successfully deploy the exosuit onto the wreck itself because of the type of ship we were using. 
Um, and uh, in, in our process of visiting Antikythera nine times um, between 2012 and 2017, um, we, we didn't have the budget for a, a, you know, a DSV or other such suitable vessel at that time. But the, um, the proviso for the team of pilots that were trained to continue to loan that particular exosuit via the medium of Woods Hole still exists. So fingers crossed we'll get back there or other projects with it and a suitable vessel uh, to use it more aggressively in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, I, I, yeah. It, it, it would be like a dream to get into one of those. I did some filming with one many years ago, um, not me inside, you know, I was filming it from the outside, and I thought, wow, how exciting is this? Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Your, your life now is um, closed circuit rebreathers. Mm -hmm. um, you teach courses? Mm -hmm. I, um, I basically started uh, my kind of diving career, which has been 30 years now, started as a basic scuba instructor, um, taught scuba, funnily enough, on Swanage Pier, um, one of the very popular and iconic diving sites back in the day. Um, and I was a paddy instructor and I worked there for several years before the birth of technical diving, um, Kevin Gurr bought that into the UK from the US. And I started to use that for basically exploring shipwrecks beyond the air range in the 60, 70 meter plus range in the UK South Coast Channel. Um, and we were out every other weekend finding new wrecks and identifying them using trimix and technical nitrox and other of these processes. And then slowly I stopped teaching recreational and moved across to teach technical. I actually ended up working for Kevin Gurr at his company, Phoenix Diver Training. That evolved into Phoenix Oceaneering, and through that, using rebreathers, we uh, took part in two uh, treasure recovery projects for the Fisher Corporation, the um, Atosha and Margarita wrecks in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and then a deeper wreck, the Pilar, off of the southern tip of the island of Guam in the, in the Pacific. So we were using their um, US Navy Mark 15 5 rebreathers with um, civilian custom-made electronics packs, which were basically developed and invented by Kevin. And then from that, the Kevin's first standalone rebreather, the Ouroboros, was, was built. The company evolved into VR Technologies, who made the first really sort of mass-produced, successful Trimix open and closed-circuit computer, the VR3. Um, and I became the test diver, the principal trainer and instructor trainer for that company on the Ouroboros and then subsequently the Sentinel, the next rebreather they made. So that was how I got into rebreather, so to speak. But the, the whole evolution up to about five years ago was teaching, teaching beginner, teaching instructors, teaching dive masters, teaching technical and cave, then rebreather. Um, and then that led me into meeting the guys from WUI and other scientific institutions. So over the last five years, I've pretty much become commercial as a dive safety officer, dive operations manager and diver um, for scientific diving projects worldwide. So that's kind of how it all grew and came together, really. So are, are you still running courses or, or have you totally I, given that up now? No, I run, I suppose, uh, without it sounding terrible, I run what I want to run for the groups I want to run it through. Um, so I do, on average, uh, one, one or two months per year of cave training. Um, mostly in the Lot d'Ordoin region of France, but also in other places around the world. I did some cave courses uh, for Croatian students in Croatia in the mountains last year. 
and I run one month of um, advanced level mine diver instruction, which is very similar to CAVE, small differences, but very similar in Sweden uh, per year. And I tend to run the higher level stuff. So I'll run full hypoxic trimix in CAVE or in mine. I'll run DPV, that's diver propulsion vehicle, slightly different to the previous DPV we talked about, um, in mine or in CAVE. I'll teach people to map mines and caves, so cartography courses. Um, so the higher levels uh, specializing in mine and cave because I enjoy it. And my origins as a diver came from being a dry caver, joining the British Cave Diving Group, CDG, and diving sumps in British caves. So it's the thing that drives me. Uh, my, my passion is exploring caves when I'm not working. Uh, so I still teach that for that reason. Wow. Do you ever get anybody fail these courses? Um, so it's a very good question. And I don't, and I say this to my students when we start an inquiry line, can you teach this? Yes. How long does it take? That depends. How much does it cost? That depends. Because what, what I tend, I started to do probably as much as 10 years back is instead of advertising and saying to a, a student, you can do course A, it will run from Monday to Friday next week. What I say is, oh, well, basically a mentor program. What are you now? What do you want to achieve? I will book you five days, nine days, 10 days of my time, and we will work on what you have, improve it, develop it, extend it. And the next logical step is that you would be working towards this qualification. We may or may not reach that required level of ability by the end of the nine days, five days that you've booked with me, either way, you'll improve as a diver. Uh, rather than kind of dangling, come for five days, at the end, you'll get this qualification. Say, well, no, come five days and get better. Um, and at the end of that five days, it might be, well, I think with another three days of development or two days or one day, you, you may well uh, work towards your next level. Um, with some people, they come on a course and end up redoing the one before. And this is no fault of theirs, certainly no fault of the instructor that trained them previously. People get rusty. Um, so it, it was more a, a, a personal mentoring training, like a fitness trainer, I guess, of like, well, where are you now? Where do you want to be? Let's have a look at what, what your capabilities are, and let's try and get you to where you want to be in an unknown time frame, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, absolutely. What are the inherent dangers then of um, using rebreathers and, and particularly closed circuit rebreathers? Well, uh, we jump backwards a little bit just before I answer that. The inherent dangers of diving is you'll drown um, because, you know, with the exception of free diving, which is very limited um, and is not without its own, per, own individual set of risks, we're not meant to be underwater. Um, so basically, whether we're on a single tank in 20 metres of water looking at fish in the tropics or if we're, in, we're on a rebreather with five bailout tanks at 100 metres looking at a wreck in Norway, um, the, the basic fact that we cannot live in the environment we've chosen to put ourselves in can never go away. No different to space. That environment is completely um, unsurvivable for us without the tools we take with us. Now, as to danger, um, whether you take a single tank diver um, in 10, 20 meters of water, 
um, or a high-level technical diver, you could argue which is more dangerous. If, if a single tank diver has a failure of their primary breathing system, which is effectively the first stage on that regulator that they own, they can't breathe anything. The octopus that people have because they're told to have an octopus, you can't breathe it if the first stage has failed. You can't breathe it if the cylinder is empty for some reason. You have now nothing to breathe. So you have to use your training and go to your buddy and give an appropriate signal and take a donated second stage to share gas and then ascend. But what if your buddy's not there? Because if you're looking at an audience of British or Northern European divers and say to them, honestly, have you ever misplaced your buddy? People are honest. I think just about everyone would, would say yes. Um, and if that occurred, when you have a single breathable source, you now have no options. So a beginner technical diver is taught about redundancy. They're taught if you need it, you need two and the ability to switch from the broken one to the working one. Now you can now layer that up as high as you want to go. So is the diver on a closed circuit rebreather at 100 meters in a flooded mine at more risk than the single tank diver um, in 10 meters in the ocean? Well, maybe not because as long as they have over a series of dives over a number of years, gradually progress their qualifications, their training and their equipment to effectively mitigate the risk that exists and have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, um, then they effectively become self-sufficient. They dive in a team so they're more than self-sufficient and they actually effectively become safer. If a diver chooses to go beyond, if we call it the rules, recognized procedures, to take risks that, that sort of open up that further and that may be an explorer who who chooses to go further than normal to achieve something like finding new cave climbing a new mountain etc then maybe their risk level rises but i suppose the way to put it is thanks to the work of the legendary cave pioneer Sheck exley looking at accident analysis and developing his book blueprint for survival which in short is a book of 10 things that if you do those 10 things like have redundant gas, have a backup light, always use a guideline, etc. You probably won't have an accident in a cave, even while cave diving. And then you look at the statistics and say, well, how many certified, qualified cave divers who are current, i.e. they're actively cave diving, have accidents? Tiny, tiny numbers. How many very experienced open water scuba instructors who think, that's okay, I've got a torch, there's a line, I'll go and have a little look, have accidents, loads that's why blueprint was developed and now leading into your question are rebreathers um dangerous i suppose it's like are dogs dangerous N inherently no you know it's just mechanics modern rebreathers have levels of backup they have redundancy your primary instrumentation telling you what you're breathing should it fail is backed up there are means of proving whether it's telling the truth by doing certain skills that make it have a known quantity. And if the known quantity is matched by the displays, you know it's working, you know it's telling the truth. And what's evolved enormously over the last 15 years is the quality of product and the quality of training. So much like Sheck's blueprint evolved the quality of cave training, 
Um, the last 10 years have hugely evolved the quality of rebreather training through the main agencies and the quality of rebreather manufacture, um, compliance with CE certification, um, and the, the statistics of properly qualified divers using proper equipment, not modified, um, the statistics are now good. Perfect answer. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've never, I've never gone into rebreathers at all, except for trying the odd one for reviews and things. And, mm -hmm. and I have to say, you know, even the little tiny bit that I did, I enjoyed thoroughly. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I've never made that leap. Perhaps mm -hmm. after this, I will. It, yeah. it, it sounds too exciting. Yeah. Tell me, do you? Is it the environment of the oceans, wrecks, caves that draws you in, or is it the technicality and the challenges of physically doing it? De definitely the environment. You know, if I, if I could find unexplored cave or a, an undived virgin wreck last seen when it sunk in 10 meters of water in 30 degrees C in the, in, in the, you know, in the, in the tropics, I'd dive there. I, you know, I don't, by, by, uh, by nature, I don't like bad visibility, cold water or uncomfortable conditions. I find myself in them regularly because that's where you have to go to explore, to, to find an undive wreck, to find undive cave, to go to a new gallery in a mine that's not been seen since the mine closed. Um, tends to be deeper, requiring decompression, tends to be colder tends to be, you know, sometimes poorer visibility. But yeah, it is, for me, certainly, and I believe for, for everyone it should be, it is about what you go there to see. You know, you don't dive as an exercise in, in technical skills. You dive to see a wreck, see marine life, see coral, see geology, you know, uh, and, and, and therefore you just learn the right skill set and obtain the right amount of um, tools um, and Back to the previous question and your comment, a rebreather is a tool. You know, I don't dive rebreather because it's better than open circuit or I like it more. It's just most of the dives I find myself doing now, it's far more productive. And if used properly, actually, I believe safer because of the time it gives you in the event of a failure. So, yeah, environment, absolutely, to that previous question, always about the environment. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, that's good. Have you got any projects lined up? Anything that uh, you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Um, so projects lined up, yeah, despite the current uh, lockdown situation, we, we because it was um, institutional, we were able to continue one of our big, big projects last year, um, which is a type of work we now do, which is, is working for an American organization called the DPAA. Uh, that's the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. And what they do is they uh, look for the remains of the 90 plus thousand American soldiers, sailors and airmen that basically were left behind after a war. Um, and, and basically, they try to recover them, send them home for the family to get closure, to get full burial, to get a full military ceremony, uh, normally recognition at Arlington um, military ceremony, cemetery. And uh, we've been working for them through um, the university that, that I work for um, full time, which is basically Lund University Archaeological uh, maritime archaeological department. So what we did in two, 2017, we went to a B-24 bomber, we excavated and surveyed the wreck. 
and uh, we basically returned all things that we found that may have been possible material evidence or may have been possible osseous remains, bone remains, and we returned them via Germany through military flight to the DPAA's laboratories in Hawaii, where they were tested in every manner conceivable, including DNA. And we established that we had found Lieutenant Eugene Ford, the pilot of that B-24 Tulsa American. And he went to Arlington for a full military ceremony to his family for, for proper burial. And that case is now closed um, appropriately. Last year, in the middle of lockdowns, we were able to um, go out and continue with a, another job of the same nature on a new aircraft wreck. The results of that are not public domain at this time, um, but we did a full two months on site um, with an awful lot of work um, with, with results that are being assessed now. And uh, to lead that into what's coming up, we have another DPAA job that we're starting in April this year. Um, this one will actually be in slightly colder water, actually lots colder water will be in the Baltic. Um, so instead of uh, 18, 20 degrees in, um, in the Adriatic, we'll be in two degrees in the Baltic, but uh, it's a, a similar nature of work. Um, so that will be a B-17 aircraft. Um, and basically it's an excavation and survey of the site to see if any possible material evidence or possible osseous remains still exist on that site. Uh, and then our, one of our biggest projects at the moment is the, um, the Danish king's ship, the Gribschunden, which sunk in 1495 in what was at the time Danish waters, but which is now Swedish waters. Uh, we did a full month long excavation project on her in 2019. Um, we did um, some artifact recovery for ongoing conservation and research at the tail end of last year in November bringing up barrels that were in the hold of the wreck so they could be analysed both with dendrochronology to look at their age and where the wood that made the barrels was grown, but also to start looking at DNA to look at what may have been carried in those barrels. And then this year in May, June, we'll be back out for another full month-long season on her. So this year's two main jobs coming up are, are a um, DPAA B-17 job in the Baltic and uh, uh, part two of our Gripshunden project um, in, in Sweden. Um, second part of your question there, is there things that I would really like to do? Um, everyone's got a bucket list and I think you should. The main one is in a, in a working capacity for an extended duration, uh, I would most like to um, visit and dive um, and hopefully um, work on operations in the Antarctic. Um, now, whether that's likely, because I'm not getting any younger, and, um, but it, it, it was, has always been my sort of bucket list thing. I'd like to go down there for, you know, a full season um, and basically work on some of the scientific diving operations that take place down there. Because the footage I've seen is just, is just mind-blowing. And it's, uh, you know, one of those continents I'm obsessed with from reading the accounts of the, uh, the great era of exploration of Shackleton, Scott, Amundsen, um, etc. So yeah, that's probably where I'd, uh, where I'd most like to go. I think you lead um, a very exciting life and seem absolutely uh, entirely happy with it. It's, it's everything is, is um, and the results that you're getting, I mean, that must be so satisfying. Wonderful, wonderful. Definitely the, the DPAA work when, you know, when you, are working to send a family their relative home 
who gave everything, um, sacrificed their own life for the protection of others in a war. Um, and when a job like that succeeds and then you, the team get like a handwritten letter from family members thanking you for what you did, that's, it is unbelievably rewarding. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard work, it's tough work, but it's, it's just so rewarding to, the, to look at the end result. Um, uh, so more of those, more of those jobs um, would be good for that reason. And the teamwork, you know, we, we put together uh, in 2017 on the Tulsa American, we were nearly a 20, 20 man team last year because of COVID. We were quite much more restricted. We were an eight man team, but we were still able to work effectively and productively. But the camaraderie of working with a team, you know, living together on a boat in, a, in an accommodation block for a month, two months, to, to achieve such an end goal, you know, these people become more than friends. It's like a brotherhood. Uh, and it's, that's a very rewarding part of it as well. Brilliant. It's been an absolute joy listening to, uh, to your stories. And I uh, thank you very much. Um, We'll, we'll end there. Um, good luck with all your future projects. I hope you make it to Antarctica. It, um, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll, we'll sign off for now. And uh, once again, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for inviting me and a pleasure talking to you. Oh, uh, you too. Bye for now. Okay. Take care.